Today we will be um, looking at Luke chapter 16, Luke chapter 16, and we will be covering 18 verses. Uh, before we get too far into um, today's message, um, I just want to take the opportunity to open in a word of prayer um, and just thank God for His um, graciousness and also pray for some needs. Um, I'm, I'm thinking specifically of John's wife Candace. John informed me that she goes in for a biopsy tomorrow, so we will be praying that that will be um, something that will go off with um, very viable treatment options coming forth. Um, so let's open an order of prayer. Father, we do appreciate uh, the opportunity to come before you in prayer, um, the opportunity to know that you are listening. We know that we don't serve idols who can't smell, who can't see, who can't hear. Uh, we don't dance in front of a, a stone idol and, and cut ourselves, hoping that you'll hear, thinking that you're sleeping. But we know that we serve a God who neither slumbers nor sleeps. And Lord, we just would lift up our sister Candace today, Lord, that you would be with her, that you would touch her body. We thank you that you are the great physician. And we thank you that whatever you have called her to go through, that you are, uh, are the one that gives grace that is sufficient to endure it. We also pray for Mr. Defoe, Lord, that you would help him to embrace his new reality and that you would help him to realize uh, through your grace that life is a gift and that even though he is changing what he's able to do that you um, every day that he is able to wake up and take air into his lungs is a gift from you Lord I just pray that you would uphold these two and heal them in your way in your time we ask this in Jesus name Amen Alright well I have to admit that as I approach this 16th chapter of Luke, I do so with a little bit of trepidation because this is a very interesting passage of Scripture, one which uh, teachers and uh, theologians have certain disagreements on. Um, but I think the overall principles are fairly clear, and so we're just going to read this and do our best by God's grace to discuss it together. Um, Luke chapter 16, verse 1 reads, And he said unto his disciples, There was a certain rich man which had a steward, and the same was accused unto him that he had wasted his good. And he called, unto, called and said unto him, How is it that I hear this of thee? Give thou an account of thy stewardship, for thou mayest no longer be steward. Then the steward said within himself, What shall I do? For my Lord taketh away from me the stewardship. I cannot dig, and to beg I am ashamed. I am resolved what, what to do, that when I put out of my stewardship, they may receive me into their houses. So he called every one of his Lord's debtors unto him, and said unto them, How much owest thou unto my Lord? And he said, An hundred measures of oil. And he said unto them, Take thy bill, sit down quickly, and write fifty. Then he said to another, And how much owest thou? And he said, An hundred measures of wheat. And he said unto him, Take thy bill, and write fourscore. And the Lord commended the unjust steward, because he had done wisely. 
For the children of this world are in their generation wiser than the children of light. And as we look at this, um, we see that there was a rich man, and he had a steward, and he was accused of wasting his goods. Remember, we see that the, the polar opposite of this in, in Genesis, in the, the man of Joseph, who was put ahead of Potiphar's house, and it said that everything that Joseph did while he was ahead of Potiphar's house prospered to such an extent that the only thing that Potiphar worried about was what he was going to eat every day. Now, sometimes I, I wish that that was my only worry and you know, that that was where I was, but it was just a testament to Joseph being in tune with God. And so this rich man does not have that in his steward. He has an unfaithful steward. And we don't, we don't really know exactly why, how this steward was unfaithful. It could be, um, I, I've, I've read this week that it, that it very well could be that the steward was just not good at accounting and that he, he didn't make the wisest decisions with his master's money. And it wasn't necessarily something that he was... Um, out and out dishonest about, just that he had not been the shrewdest manager. Um, and so, but whatever the case, he's being called to account. He's saying, you're going to be no longer steward. Um, so give an account of thy stewardship. And so he's like, I'm about to be fired. I do not have the means to survive without this job. I do not want to beg, and I'm not strong enough to do manual labor. And so what am I going to do? And so then he gets this idea. He says, um, I'm going to call my masters, the people that owe my master money, and I'm going to reduce their bill, and they're going to pay it. And then when I am out of a job, they will be gracious to me because I lowered their bill. And, you know, perhaps one of the issues was that he wasn't good at, at getting people to pay the full amount of their bill, but whatever the case may be, he puts forth this plan, and uh, the manager sees this, and he couldn't have been happy about it, but he commends his uh, wisdom in how he, how he made sure that, that these accounts were brought current, even though he did so by reducing the bill in a way that his master probably was not happy with. And uh, so it's interesting, he doesn't get commended for, for the mistakes that he made in the past, it doesn't say that this is the, necessarily the correct thing to do, but he's commended for his shrewdness. And I think about this in the context of, for instance, the uh, woman Rahab who hid the spies on her roof and sent the, sent the uh, leaders of her community the opposite way to find them because they wanted to destroy them 
because they knew they were a threat. A lot of times people say, well, she lied and she was commended for it. But when we read in Hebrews about her, we don't read that she was commended for lying. We read that she was commended for her faith. And what, the, what was that faith in? That faith was in the fact that God said through these people, if you um, put this uh, cord in your window, then we will come back because of the kindness you showed us and we will deliver you from Jericho when we come to destroy it. Because she had heard the stories of the mighty things that God had done for the children of Israel, which is one, one of, this is one thing that's very in, interesting to me, is that she heard these stories and she believed them and she was afraid. And yet you have so many times in the life of the children of Israel where they failed to, to remember the stories and believe. And I don't, I don't want to get to too much of a rabbit trail, but I only wanted to bring out the fact that Jesus is in no way saying that being a foolish steward is a good thing. He is simply pointing out that this uh, man took the situation he was in and tried to do the best by it. And then, um, so Jesus is, is going to go into, as we go on, uh, a little bit more about how we can use our resources wisely. Uh, this man was a man of the world. He was not God-fearing. And so he um, did uh, what he thought was wise to the extent that he could because he was without... Um, any influence from God. And uh, Jesus says something very interesting in verse 8 here. He says, And the Lord commanded the unjust steward because he had done wisely, for the children of this world are in their generation wiser than the children of light. And I don't want to belabor the point and get extremely political on you here, but I really see this in the area of politics. Because often we hear about conservatives making compromises and reaching across the aisle so that they can hopefully agree with the liberal people that are in government and come to some kind of consensus. But you very rarely see it going the other way. Because the liberal people that serve us in our country are often... Um, they often say, at any cost, I'm going to get my agenda across. And it's usually an evil, godless agenda, but they never stop short of making sure that it happens. And I think what God uh, is trying to say to us in this, in this passage is that we uh, need to have a certain level of shrewdness in the way that we do things from a biblical perspective. Um, Jesus said in another passage that we should be um, shrewd as servants, but gentle as doves. So we should be wise in the way that we conduct ourselves, in the way that we live our lives, and in the way that we present the truth. Um, and so, um, if we could look at 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 5, as a way of kind of 
hopefully giving us a little bit more insight on this. 1 Thessalonians 5.5, 5, if somebody uh, gets that, um, they could share that with us. Okay, so again, that term, children of the light, um, is used, and we um, should be able to convey the light of Christ in a wise manner. And I, and I, I know that means a lot of things to, or different things to different people. Sometimes the bigger churches, they, they get into these multimedia presentations and and you know smoke machines and whatever else uh, they they might uh, use to to make the preaching of the of uh, Jesus appealing, but I think a lot of times we compromise the message in order to do that. The Bible says um, that the cross is to them that perish foolishness, and it also says that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. If we are compromising the truth of the scripture in order to make people interested in it, then there's nothing that we are bringing them to. We are in fact doing evil because we have chosen to let them believe a lie so that they will stay with us. Rather than being as John was, when he said they went out from us because they were not of us. And uh, um, so then in our second point, uh, we'll continue. Jesus is going to use, kind of use what he just talked about to talk about us being faithful with our resources. Um, and uh, if we look at Luke chapter 16, verses 9 to 13, there we read, And I say unto you, Make yourselves friends of mammon, of mammon of unrighteousness, that when ye fail, they may receive you into everlasting habitations. He that is faithful in the least is faithful in much, and he that is unjust in the least is unjust also in much. If ye therefore have been faithful in the unrighteous mammon, uh, have not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon, who will commit to you, to your trust, true, the true riches? And if you have been faithful in that which is another man's, who shall give you that which is of your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one, <clears throat> for either he will hate the one, and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. No man can serve God and mammon. And in this passage, we know that mammon is speaking of money. So what Jesus is saying is, if you have um, world, if you have uh, earthly money, then you should use it to affect those things that are eternal. In Matthew. Jesus says, Lay not up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and rust corrupt and where thieves break in and steals, but rather lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven uh, where none of that can occur. 
um, and make investments in ministries and in people because those are the eternal things. People are the one resource that we can bring with us when we go to heaven. None of us will be uh, bringing a hearse with us and uh, so we need to make sure that we are wisely using that which we've been given. Um, and uh, I just think it's, it's very significant, even though it's a well-known phrase, he that is faithful in that which is least is faithful also in much, and he that is unjust in the least is unjust also in much. I've had conversations, or one particular conversation with someone, who said, you know, if I was rich, I would give all this money to the poor. I would do all this good, these good things for people if I was rich. That's what I would do. And I've never been rich, but the one thing that I have come to realize over the years is that if I'm not faithful to use the resources that God has given me now, you know, then I have no reason to expect God to double or triple my resources if I'm not being faithful in that which he has given me now. And uh, I've found in my ministry as well that sometimes the least well-to-do people among my friends are among the most generous givers. Um, and uh, I think it's because they realize that when you give to the poor, when you give to God's kingdom, and in, in, in essence, in, this, in a way, when you give to the poor, you lend to the Lord. And so they realize that by giving to me and giving to others who serve, such as myself, they are giving to the Lord. And that carries with it a great deal of responsibility for me as God's servant to be wise with my finances and to give an account of what I'm doing in ministry. That's why I send out uh, regular uh, missionary letters because I want people to realize what is going on, and I, and I really count you as part of my ministry. And then he says something about like this. He says, if you therefore have not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon, who will commit to you, uh, to your trust, the true riches? I never really thought about this a lot before, but the way that we conduct our earthly business and the way that we uh, take care of the earthly resources that God has given us will, is probably training for what God has for us uh, in the next life. A lot of times we, we, when we depict heaven, we think about it as sitting on a cloud, playing harps, and just relaxing for all of eternity. Now, I believe there will be a, a lot of relaxation in eternity. No more burdens of sin. No more physical problems. There's no wheelchairs allowed in heaven, which is an awesome thing. Uh, because here on earth, when it says no wheelchairs allowed or no wheelchair accessibility, that's just frustrating. But when God says that he's going to give me a new body, that's why the wheelchairs aren't allowed, because they're not necessary. So that is good. But I, I've been thinking about this a lot that work came before the fall. God put Adam and Eve in the garden to tend it and to keep it. And he told Adam to name all the animals and to care for them. That happened before the fall. And Adam would walk in the cool of the garden 
with God every day, and he would do the things that God had called him to do. And then a short time later, he and Eve decided to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They broke fellowship with God, and they sewed fig leaves together trying to cover their nakedness. And, and Jesus and God says, Who told you that you were naked? Because it says before the fall that they were naked and unashamed. And uh, we can't comprehend what that means, but one day we will be able to do that. <clears throat> and so, we, so I think he's saying that if we are faithful with the little that God has given us, he will give us more. And the more faithful we are to do his work here on earth, I think the greater work he has for us when we get uh, into his heaven. And I'm very uh, excited to see uh, what God has for us as we go forward. And then he says, um, No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and man. It, there was a, a time about a year ago, I'd say it was about, about ex almost exactly a year ago, where I had the opportunity to pursue a job that would have been uh, considerably uh, more money than I have ever made before in my life. And, um, but I really felt that it would tax my, me mentally and um, physically beyond the ability to continue to uh, undertake the ministry goals that God had put forth to me. And so I had to, to walk away from that opportunity. And the people that were trying to help me find a job through Michigan Rehab, they didn't understand that because they thought, well, this is... This is the golden opportunity for you. Um, why didn't you take it? But I knew that to take it, it would not be a good fit with the other things that I do, which God has called me to. And so um, that's just one small way where I realized that um, I would have to make a decision like that. And God has provided. Perhaps not in the way um, that I would wish he would sometimes, um, but he always does, and I needed to continue to trust him. And uh, I think of Paul in Second Timothy chapter four. He talks about um, a friend that forsake him, forsook him, because he loved the present world. And God says to us to make sure that we are loving him and not loving the world. We can enjoy the world, because he's given us everything richly to enjoy, but we are not to love it. And as we were talking about wisdom a little bit earlier, I just wanted to share this quote. Wisdom is the power to see and the inclination to choose the best and highest goal, together with the surest means of attaining it. And that is J.I. Packer from the book Knowing God. And... Uh, then if we could look um, on this topic of uh, continuing to use our resources wisely, look at 1 Timothy chapter 6, 
verses 17 to 19. 1 Timothy 6, verses 17 to 19. Somebody could read that for us. Notice in this passage that he does not condemn the rich for being rich. He basically is outlining, if you are rich, if you have been given riches in this world, use it wisely and invest it in the future. Um, And God will bless you. Often when I think about this, I I think about uh, Ananias and Sapphira. Back in the first part of Acts, Ananias and Sapphira were members of uh, the first church and everybody was selling the things that they owned and pulling it together and helping one another the way that we are supposed to do. We're called to help one another and they came and they wanted to help so they sold their land and then they kept back part of it for themselves. Their sin was not in keeping back part of it. They could have said, We're going to sell the land, we'll give half of it to the church, and we'll keep half of it to live off of. There would be nothing whatsoever sinful about that. But what did they do? They kept half of it, and they said, this is all of it. Peter said to them, is this all of it? And they said, yes, it's all of it. And one by one, God called them to account by striking them dead. Some people say that they weren't believers, but I believe they were because Peter tells them, how is it that you could lie to the Holy Spirit? I don't believe that a non-believer can lie to the Holy Spirit because he doesn't know the Holy Spirit. But Ananias and Sapphira did, and they had this resource, and they could have kept any part of it for themselves, and God would not have held that against them. What he held against them was that they lied and said, this is the whole amount. And so he struck them dead as an example, and it says, the whole church feared because of that. So, I just think it's important for us to realize, um, and actually what I was talking about earlier, how God gave us all things virtually to enjoy. It's in that passage. Everything that you've been given is to a degree for your enjoyment. But God does not want to um, use the things that we have solely for our enjoyment at the expense of others. As a matter of fact, he says in Galatians, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty to which you have been called. And then later in the chapter he says, Only use not liberty for an occasion for the flesh, but by love serve one another. That's, that's kind of the model of, the, of Rest Haven Homes, where my brother works in Grand Rapids. And I really like that. By love, serve one another. It's a very good reminder to each of us 
David Livingston said this. He said, I place no value on anything that I possess except in relation to the kingdom of God. If anything will advance the interests of the kingdom, it shall be given away or kept only as by the giving or the keeping I shall promote the glory of him to whom I owe all my hopes in time or eternity. See, the thing is, God is the one that sustains us here on earth, and God is the one that will sustain us in the hereafter. Jesus says in the Gospels that whoever loses for my sake will gain a hundredfold in various contexts and areas. I don't remember all the specifics, but he's saying the gains of what, what you will receive after you give up are far greater than what you're giving up. And that's something that we all need to be reminded of. And then as we finish our passage today, we look at Luke 16, 14 to 18. Heaven's priorities are different than those of the world. Um, Luke 16, 14 says, And the Pharisees also, which were covetous, heard all these things, and they derided him. And he said unto them, You are they which justify yourselves before men, but God knoweth your hearts, for that which is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God. You may recall in the book of 1 Samuel when Samuel is coming to Jesse's sons to uh, select a king. And he says, he looks at the first two and says, Surely these must, one of these must be the ones. And God says, Look not on this man nor the height of his stature. For for God seeth not as man seeth. For man looketh on the outward appearance. But the Lord looks at the heart. The one that God chose to be king was not even called. That's how insignificant he seemed to everyone else around. We're not even going to call him to this anointing because there is no possible way that he could be the king. And yet, what do we find? As soon as David arrived, God said to Samuel, this is the one, anoint him to be the next king of Israel. There was no hesitation on God's part. There was no, oh, maybe in three or four years you can anoint him king of Israel because then he'll be ready. No. God said, this is my plan for David is to be the king of Israel. Now, of course, we know that he did have a training time because he was not uh, made king of Israel right away and, as a matter of fact, had to run for his life from Saul. But we know that David was God's choice even though it wasn't man's choice. And uh, the law and the prophets were until John since that time, the kingdom of God is preached, and every man presses, presses into it. And it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than one tittle of the law to fail. Whosoever 
putteth away his wife, and marrieth another, committeth adultery. And whosoever marrieth her that is put away from her husband, committeth adultery. Now this kind of seems like um, random. Why would Jesus put this here as verse 18? But maybe it was something that the, the Pharisees were struggling with, or people in that culture were struggling with, where, where they said, well, well, the law of Moses says that we can divorce our wives. You know, there, there's a lot that we can do that maybe we shouldn't. Paul said it this way, he said, all things are lawful for me, but all things are not expedient. God's will for marriage is not divorce. God's will for marriage is a lifetime commitment. Till death do us part. For richer, for poorer. For better or worse. On the wedding day, nobody can imagine the worse. They're just so excited about the better that is occurring. But the worst does come. Trials do come. I've watched my parents weather some amazing trials. But yet they're still together. Not solely or not primarily because of their love for one another, though it is strong. But because they're able to love one another because God first loved them. That is such a testimony to me. We need to get to a place, and, and I, I struggle to say this, but I'm going to say it anyway. We need to get to a place where there is once again at least somewhat of a stigma on the issue of divorce. Because we no longer, as a collective Christian society, seem to bat an eye at it. When in reality, God cries out for reconciliation. Why? Because the whole picture of marriage is Christ and the church. And if I marry one day, which I hope to do, and then walk away from my wife a few months or a few years in, what am I saying? I'm saying that the cross was not enough. I'm saying that the perfect righteousness of God was not enough. My friends, we are not saved because we are just about good enough and then Jesus fills in the rest. We are saved because we are dead. We are, we are far away from God and he pulled us to himself. And those arms that stretched across the cross of wood were stretched wide open for you and me to simply approach and say, God, I can't do it. And he says, that's okay, because I did it. Praise the Lord. I just want to share with you this short story, and then we'll close. In recent years, a head coach divorced his wife of 26 years when he left coaching a college team to become the head coach in the National Football League. He said he needed a wife while coaching on the college level for social functions and to show families that he would be looking out for their sons. In pro football, however, she was un an unnecessary accoutrement and a distraction to winning. 
He said winning football was his number one priority and his two sons second. How tragic. In contrast to this, and that was Jimmy Johnson, former coach of the Miami Hurricanes and Dallas Cowboys. In contrast to this, Tom Landry, former coach of the Dallas Cowboys, said, The thrill of knowing Jesus is the greatest thing that has ever happened to me. I think God has put me in a very special place, and he expects me to use it to his glory. In everything I do, whether coaching football or talking to the press, I'm always a Christian. Christ is first, family second, and football is third. And yet this man was one of the most successful football coaches in the history of the game. It wasn't that his football suffered because he had his priorities right. In fact, his ability to coach grew because of his ability to put his priorities straight. And when they saw the success that he had on the football field, he was able to point them to the one person that mattered, Jesus Christ. God is not against we as Christians having earthly success, but what he wants us to do when we have earthly success is to be able to point to the one person that matters, the one person that brought it all to us, and that is Jesus Christ. My question to you is, do you recognize and acknowledge that everything you have, even the air that you breathe, is from him? And have you surrendered your life to him? My hope and prayer is that the answer is yes, and that you are walking in victory because the thing that you could not do is already done. The sin that you could not remove has the potential to be removed if you will but call upon the name of the Lord. It's the best truth in the world. And I hope that you have embraced it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we just thank you and praise you for your word. We thank you and praise you for this, these stories of imperfect people that you use to teach lessons to us about how to be better stewards and be better workers in the kingdom of God. Lord, we just pray that you would help us to be shrewd stewards of the things that you have given us, both our time and our resources, and that we would, we would live salty lives that would make people thirsty for the word of God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.